Hello, and welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, and I'm joined today with Dr. Mary Beth Wilkes-Janke. Mary Beth is a former U.S. Secret Service agent and current professor of forensic and clinical psychology and author of The Protector. Mary Beth, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Hey, Fred. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled. Well, it's our honor. Tell me a little bit about your book, The Protector. Yeah, The Protector got its name because, well, I'll tell you, I'll take a back step on that. I, When I sat down to write my book, I thought I was going to tell my whole sort of professional story, which would have included my investigative work as well. But I wrote so many pages just on my protective mission, starting with my time in the Secret Service, that it ended up being, you know, a, a, it's its own entity. So uh, that's why it starts with the protector with that whole long subtitle. But it's Really, it's uh, mission-driven, meaning each mission has its own chapter, uh, mostly geographically based. So Haiti, Dallas, Texas, Bogota, Colombia, Lima, Peru. That's sort of how I ended up writing about them, each mission um, and its geography. Amazing. Now, when did you join the Secret Service and how did you get there? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know the crazy paperwork trail that takes it takes to get into the federal government. Uh, I was in 1991, so under Bush Senior, um, and it, you know, it's I, I tell people sometimes as a joke is, you know, how did you get in? And it's like I applied because it takes such tenacity to to say, you know, for some people it can be a two year process. For me, it wasn't quite that long. They told me to expect to wait two years, but nine months later they were calling me to to offer me a job and. From my perspective, although nobody ever admitted this to me, I knew one uh, female, as you know, Fred, they hire us, but we don't stay. We leave to have babies, we leave to get married. And so trying to keep the percentage of females up in, in the federal law enforcement community is tough. And two, I was bilingual and still am decently bilingual in Spanish at the time. So they sped my application pretty quickly through the system. And my goodness, uh, by this time, were you already a PhD in forensic and clinical psychology, or did you get that uh, while working for the Secret Service? Yeah. So, um, and I'll say this to you and your listeners, my career with the Secret Service was about 13 months, and you'll have to read the book to find out why. And so in saying that, that's what kicked me into the private sector of doing freelance protection and investigations. And that's why I ended up in places like Lima, Peru, Bogota, Colombia, Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And two of those were uh, State Department contracts. And so my career with the Secret Service was awesome. The training was great. I enjoyed my time. It's just that my career was short-lived. And then, sorry, so I didn't answer your question. My Forensic psychology master's came 10 years out of undergrad, and I went to the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City, and that was a two-year endeavor. And then about 10 years later, I met my now husband, and 
I was living in San Diego and Mike and I decided to merge lives on the East Coast. And I was giving up my amazing house in San Diego, my uh, part ownership in a company in that I was working for that was a security company and my position, which was COO of investigations. And so I decided then that I needed, you know, having been super independent, I met my husband when I was 40 years old and he's my first husband. So I was jet setting all over the world, kind of a career girl. And when I decided to kind of give everything up, I was like, I need to do something big for myself. So that's when I decided to pursue a doctorate in clinical psychology. So that was 20 years out of undergraduate. Wow, that's amazing. Now let's talk about your private sector career in, uh, in the executive protection space, I assume? Yes, both investigations and protection, but that's mostly what the book is based on is my protection world. What's some interesting stories from that world? You know, I think for me, not just because I'm a female, because I even know the men that I was working with on these teams, you know, the, the more dangerous, the better. So I would instantly go to Lima, Peru, Port-au-Prince, Haiti, and Bogota, Colombia. Um, you know, in Bogota, Colombia, I had a price on my head from the FARC, which was their number one terrorist organization, because my three teammates and I were considered the enemy that we were training uh, the protection agents on the president's team, the vice president's team, and the minister of defense's team to keep those people alive. And they did not want them alive because they were quashing, you know, their goals of drug um, smuggling, drug running, and kidnapping. In Lima, Peru, uh, this was uh, around the time, if you remember, the Sendero Luminoso, which was the shining path. And oh, we yeah. landed, yeah, we landed in Lima. I was one of uh, eight um, and seven men and me in Lima. And what happened was it was the Organization of American States. They were doing their, you know, what they've done all over the world, which is election monitoring. This is the first time they ever hired security. And it was because the Sendero Luminoso was bombing. They bombed IBM. They tried to bomb a plane, an American Airlines plane. They bombed the ambassador's residence. And while I was there, they actually bombed a hotel about two blocks from the hotel we were staying at. So they weren't, you know, even though it was the Organization of American States, which is not fully U.S. funded, it's based in D.C., so it just looked like an American endeavor. So they sort of blamed us for that and, and were trying to take out Americans. And they were, they were committing terrorist acts all over the country prior to us getting there. But right before we got there, Abamayel Guzman, who was the head of the Sendero Luminoso, had been captured. So you can imagine the tizzy that type of organization went into. So they were making a lot of really stupid terrorist moves and um, being very sloppy. Wow, you've taken me back into a time frame, <laughs> uh, Mary Beth. Uh, I was deputy chief of our counterterrorism division during that, that period of time. And it seems like we were always down in Lima or Bogota on various terrorist attacks and so forth. So, um, yeah, I remember that time period very, very well, and it was extraordinarily dangerous. So um, I can only imagine the kind of work that you were stuck with in many ways. And Yeah, I loved it. I loved it. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because uh, I could just even hear it in your voice that um, uh, you really liked that kind of environment in that high-threat arena. And then you also went into Haiti. Mm. It, what do you think of the recent uh, uh, 
uh, presidential assassination in Haiti, having worked there. Yeah, I've got a, I got a lot of inquiries uh, about that. And uh, to be honest, not to be, you know, um, a, a buzzkill, but we were actually contacted and asked not to comment on that because, as you probably know by now, there's some really interesting accusations about who's actually behind the attack. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when we were there, Aristide, who had, you know, been ousted uh, in a coup, you know, you know, he made his way around a couple of countries and then landed in a beautiful hotel in Georgetown for quite some time. And Clinton decided that he was going to take him back. And a year before I got there, almost exactly, they put together a team of 21 former Navy SEALs and former Delta guys, um, some special forces. And because they thought, okay, this is a potential warlike situation. So they go down there, nothing, nothing happens. No, no coup attempts, no military attacks. And so one year later, you know, what I was told is there were a lot of chiefs and not a lot of Indians. And we ended up with a team of 11 and only two of the guys from the original team were left. And we were then a team of 11 and it was 10 men and me. And I can assure you that I was not the most welcome individual. Um, you know, they had, some of them had been down there several months. Um, I would say there was a lot of, um, I'll just be blunt. There was a lot of boozing going on. There was a lot of, um, both admiration and interaction. I'm being very, uh, diplomatic here with the local females. And, you know, these are married men that were just doing things that they thought I would get in the way of is the way I sort of looked at their perspective of me. So, um, you know, we had three team houses. I ended up living in what they called the morgue because we were considered really boring. <laughs> and um, it was just three of us. And, you know, my teammates did what my teammates did. But that experience, although pretty awesome, uh, really kind of uh, was the first time booted me out of the field in the sense where I was like, you know what? I'm sitting there one day, Fred, in the command post. And I was writing, you know, something about shots fired by the West Gate or something. And Someone says to me, Wilkes, because my maiden name, you got to come with me. You got to see this. And I'm like, okay. And he takes me out to one of the gates. And outside that gate, there was a person who had three, uh, you know, car tires thrown around them, doused in gasoline and burned because that individual had been deemed a witch. And in Haiti, they practice both Catholicism and voodoo. And I went back to the command post and I'm sitting there. And I'm looking at like all the entries I had written that day. And I'm like, you know what? This is not normal. And I'm I'm writing this stuff down as if it were normal. I just got to get the hell out of this industry. And I got to get back. My, I had always promised myself that I'd go back for my master's. So I left Haiti after about nine months um, and went back to the U.S. and um, needed to do a couple classes to get into the program. But that's when I applied to get my master's in forensic psychology. Yeah, that's an unbelievable story. And uh these dangerous hot spots that you were in, I I uh my mind flashes back to all the chaos that we had going on during this time period mm. and, and all the global operations that were underway and 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 so forth. Um We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. 
This is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. Looking back on your life, Mary Beth, did you always want to get into this business? I mean, I get asked that question a lot, you know, like, I'm not so sure how I got in this business, but did you really (laughs) want to get in this business? Yeah, uh, I would say that since my junior year of high school, when I took an elective called criminal law, which covered lots of different things. And I do remember one day, I remember the professor, I, I can't remember his name, but I can picture him. And I, one day he was just talking about federal law enforcement. And I just sat there. It was almost like that light bulb. And I went, oh my God, I know what I'm going to do with my life. And I came home that day. I was like, I'm going to be an FBI agent, you know? And um, my father, who was a, an executive VP in, in human resources at a company, I was, I was raised in a suburb of Chicago, um, one of seven kids. And Uh, My father worked in a company and one of the other executive vice presidents happened to be a retired FBI agent. So once a year, yours truly would trot downtown on the L, have lunch with my father. But before we went to lunch, he would walk me to a man's office named Marlon Johnson. Uh, He used to run the F, you know, he was the SAC, the special agent in charge of the Chicago field office. And we would chat and I would have, of course, my list of questions. And if Marlon couldn't answer them, he'd get on the phone, on speakerphone, dial the Chicago's, you know, office of the FBI, and he'd say, "Oh, I have this young lady in here who's going to be a promising agent, um, and I, she has a question that I can't answer. Can you answer it for her?" And it was like, I don't know about you, but like, it, it, it in some ways seemed like an impossibility to become a federal agent. But having these conversations with people that just seemed so human really made it more doable and more feasible for me. Looking back, would you change anything? Mm-mm. No way. You know, uh, again, if you have the time to read my story of what happened in the Secret Service, you know, I have people when they get to that part of the book, they'll call me up like, oh, I'm so pissed off and whatever. I'm like, no, they did me a favor. Like my life outside the Secret Service, the missions I took on, the investigations I worked were phenomenal. Like it just, to me, way more dangerous. You know, when you're an agent and federal law enforcement, you have teams and teams of people. You know, when you're in the private sector, you learn to do so little with so few resources. And I, as I was mentioning earlier, I love challenge. And it was like, yeah, when I came home from Columbia, I did have a, I made it out a live party, but I would never change that. I feel like, you know, if, and, and it's made me who I am today, which, you know, I hate to say it and I hope I'm not offending your listeners, but the pandemic really didn't phase me because as you know, and I'm sure you have as well, we're so used to uncertainty and crappy environments and just not knowing what's going to happen next. Yeah, that's very well said. Now, looking back on your career, would you encourage others to follow a similar path? Oh, yeah. I mentor lots and lots of people. Um, I'm one of those people who feels like so many people helped me and Like after I talk with you, I have another call with somebody that contacted me over LinkedIn, right? And so like I, because I was teaching at George Washington for three, George Washington University for three and a half years, 
And I taught a class that I created and they allowed me to teach called the psychology of crime and violence. And it was a lot of students who were criminal justice majors or criminal justice and psychology majors. And a lot of them with aspirations to be, to either be in local law enforcement, state law enforcement, federal law enforcement. And like right now, I'm waiting to hear whether a few of my former students got into one's FBI, one's secret service, one's Virginia state police. So you know, I talked to them about the process. I talked to them about the polygraph. I talked to them about, you know, their fear if they've ever done, say, marijuana. I talked to them about, you know, how do you make yourself stand out from the next guy because it seems more competitive these days. I can't really say for sure. Um, I really encourage a lot of the the people that are apprehensive that say, and you know this, like I was just saying, they told me to wait two years because they that to expect to wait two years because I had lived in Spain after college and for almost four years, and I had traveled quite a bit. And I tell people, listen, if you have any apprehensions, just go through the process. And then when they come knocking at your door, you can say yay or nay, but it's probably going to be a year or two. So go through the, you know, the paperwork and all the hoops that they have you jump through and then make your decision. Um, The other thing I encourage people to do is I send them this link that shows all the different agencies that are federal law enforcement that so many people don't know even exist. Most people know FBI, Secret Service, ATF, DEA, and maybe State Department. And I'm like, what about this? What about NCIS? What about this? You know, and they're like, what's that? Oh, I didn't know about that. So, you know, just to spread your wings a little because everybody can't be an FBI agent. Yeah, that's well said. I I always wanted to be a special agent with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. What a great job, huh? Yeah, yeah, yes. Why didn't you? Ah, they weren't hiring at the time, but uh, wow. I just kind of pictured myself in that environment with your boss, maybe like a 250 miles away and uh, <laughs> you're out there on your own. And if you think about it, uh, Mary Beth, you look back on your time uh, in the Secret Service and some of these places that you worked in uh, and just the amount of oversight at times that comes with some of these high profile assignments and cases uh there, there's something uh, very luring of the idea of just being out by yourself doing an investigation like that with uh, Washington, perhaps in many ways, not even knowing where you are. Oh, yeah, I get that. That makes sense. The less oversight, the better. And listen, in nature, if you can, and they're paying you to do that. Yeah, yeah. That would have been amazing. Now, in your investigation career, What's one of the most complex or coolest investigations that you worked in the private sector that you could talk about? Yeah, there are actually two. So I'll share that my style of investigation, and it just happened this way, with the exception of one, which I'll share. But I was that person, I didn't tell you I was investigating. So I was put on uh, a plane from Dulles to Frankfurt to, this is going to make you laugh because we were just talking about fish and wildlife, to try and speak with an individual who was on the same flight, who the fish and wildlife, he was their witness. And I was working through an attorney for our witness. And when we wanted to talk to this individual, he disappeared. They never knew where he was. But when the fish and wildlife wanted to talk to him, he just always happened to appear. So they said, okay, we're willing to take the chance to put this woman on a plane to see if she can talk to him. And my, this is a story my father used to make me tell all the time because he could not believe that, well, one, that his daughter was doing this, but two, that the guy shared as much information as he did. But 
it had to do with orangutans and how they were transport, first of all, illegal to transport them. And second of all, they were transported through, I think it was five different countries. Wow. With several people, yeah, several people implicated. And then, of course, where they landed, um, several uh, had died. So it was called the Bangkok Six because that's where they ended up landing in the airport. And, and they heard these little screeches from these monkeys that were, uh, you know, all, you know, scrunched up and being transported illegally. And so I'm on this flight, this Lufthansa flight, and this individual gets on the plane with. Uh, what I was told was a KGB agent, a female. So they were posing as like a couple and he, the plane, and I get on the plane after them to make sure they're going to stay on. And I get on and I kind of do a, a temperature check to see how they're going to respond to me. And I just said something like, oh, it's really cold on the plane, isn't it? And they were both like pretty normal. And I was like, oh, okay. And once the plane took off, Fred, the male, who's the person I wanted to speak with, got up from his seat, went back about three rows, so about a row and a half, you know how they're sort of canted from each other. And so he went back about a row and a half from me, puts on his headphones, puts the seat back and goes to sleep. And I'm thinking, ah, crap, <laughs> like, how am I supposed to talk to? So I'm looking at her to see if she, you know, the one, the woman that he was with, allegedly KGB, and she's to see if she's looking at me. And then I would look at him and I would keep doing that. I swear I probably could have used a chiropractic appointment after that. And then all of a sudden, I do not remember what I said, but at one point in the flight, he opens his eyes. I said something and he takes his headphones up and starts talking to me. So myself got up and sat where I could talk with him. And I'm telling him that, you know, I'm a protection agent. I'm going over to do an advance. Um, can't really talk about who my client is. I'm only in town. I was only going to be in town for one night, two days. Um, and he said, oh, well, have you been to Frankfurt before? I said, I haven't, but I am determined to go to the zoo. Now, if, if you don't know, the Frankfurt Zoo is pretty famous. Oh, it's yeah. very cool. Uh-huh. And so I say, I'm going to go to the zoo. And he's like, why? And I go, now are you ready for this? this is where my dad can't believe it. I said, well, because I think the monkeys, I've heard you guys, you know, in Frankfurt, they have this amazing <laughs> monkey display. And I kind of have this obsession, which is not a lie. You know, when you do these investigations, they always say to stay as close to your normal life as possible. So he's like, oh, really? I work in that industry. And he starts sharing all this information with me. And I'm like, literally, holy shite, right? <laughs> I was like, are you kidding? So he says, you know, when I get back, I'm going to be really busy, but why don't we have dinner? And I'm like, sure, this is the hotel I'm going to be in, blah, blah. He calls me later that day and he's like, listen, I'm way too jammed up. Um, how about, what time are you leaving tomorrow? And I say, blah, blah, blah time. And he says, why don't I pick you up? We'll have coffee and breakfast and I'll take you to the airport. And I was like, great. In the meantime, I had shared all the information that he had shared with me. And the guy I was giving the information to, I was working for, I don't know if you knew IGI, the investigative group in DC, but I was working with them on this investigation. And I shared it with the guy that had put me um, on this investigation. And he's like, okay, you need to find out this, 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 this. And I'm like, oh, come on. Like, <laughs> okay. So I go to breakfast and I did go to the zoo, by the way. So I go to breakfast with this guy and I was like, hey, you know, like maybe in the second cup of coffee to not be too obvious. I went to the zoo, like I told you, and you aren't kidding. It's an amazing monkey cage. And this guy just spilled so much stuff. He, to the point, Fred, where he handed me the card of the fish and wildlife agent that he was in contact with. He goes, 
here's the guy's home number. He always knows where I am. So if you ever need to get a hold of me, there you go. And I was like, come on, wow. like, no way. So my father, like I said, always used to make me tell that story because he couldn't believe that it seemed like I was being so obvious, but here's this guy had no clue. That's a great story. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Um. So that's, that's my, um, you know, I'm not telling you what I'm doing story. And it's, it, it, it's so funny because I don't think about doing stuff like that. Whereas other people are like, I don't know how you weren't scared to death. I'm like, I don't know what it is about me. I, I do have the gift of gab, but it was a little bit loco, you know, to take that on. Well, that really is a very good story. And, uh, it's one that, um, I hope that, um, folks will take advantage of by reading your book called the protector. Mary Beth, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I, I would share to people who are considering federal law enforcement or local law enforcement or state law enforcement to, you know, even if you're scared, do it scared. Uh, you know, you and I became federal agents uh, because we just went through the process. We didn't know if we were better than anybody else. Like I just, you know, you belong there as much as any other person would be my advice. So just go through with it and they'll make the decision as to whether or not, you know, you are fit for that specific agency. So, you know, have the faith in yourself and just, you know, spread your wings to lots of different agencies and have faith that whatever is supposed to happen will happen. Well, that was very well said. Uh, Mary Beth, I want to thank you for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.